You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Thank you for downloading and listening. We are very happy to be recording at the Michigan Wine Showcase, taking place at the historic Rattlesnake Club in Detroit. I'm Joe Hakeem, and tonight I'm joined by Nick. Hello. Jason. Hello. And our Michigan winemaker and wine industry friends, Lee Lutz from Black Star Farms, Chantel Lefebvre from Waterfire, uh, James Lester from Winecraft Marlin, Deborah Bergdorf from Bergdorf's Winery, Charlie Edson from Belago, and Master Sommelier Claudia Tiagi, uh, who is one of the organizers of this event. Enjoy wine by the glass without the waste. Wine protected with eco-friendly art wine preservation keeps wine fresh for weeks instead of days with only a two-second pull. Keep open bottles of wine from spoiling so you don't have to dump wine down the drain or suffer through oxidized wine. Art wine preservation was designed by an engineer in the argon industry to decrease wine waste through sustainable technology. It uses natural argon gas, which is denser than air, to displace oxygen in your bottle of wine. Remember, AR, capital T, Wine Preservation. Starting off tonight, we are with Lee Lutz from Black Star Farms. Hello, Lee. Hello, hello. How are things going? How did the media and uh, press portion of the wine event go? Things were, uh, things were good during that portion of the tasting. We had uh, enough people that were uh, kind of representing the industry down here, but also enough time between people that were visiting to be able to talk a little bit and spend a little bit of time uh, intimately, which is nice. It's always it's always difficult when you've got such a crowd of people that you can't spend some you know some personal time and and uh, so much of this business is about relationships you know as you can imagine so having uh, having a little bit of personal time a lot of these people I see every year that we come down so it's just nice to have it not be so crazy this next portion when the public is here it's going to get a little busier so and so the over the course of the years that this event has been going on which is more than five let's say yes um a number of years how uh how has the event changed for you has there's is there more people there's more wineries obviously right more wineries more people with a serious interest um in in days gone by we almost used to have to uh, bribe people to come and, you know, and when you and, say people, are you saying the industry people with more serious interest, or are you saying the public with more serious no, interest? No, both, okay. actually. Um, sommeliers, people that, you know, we, I was just talking with two sommeliers and a small group that had come over from Windsor. Uh, you know, so they're people that have a, 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 a industry in their backyard as well, in terms of Ontario and everything they've got going on there. But they had an interest in coming over to see what's happening right across the river, but as a, as a completely different component of the the broader industry uh but just just more interest on the part of everybody uh at a serious level you know people that are serious about wine looking for things other than just a sweet quaffer you know they're interested in tasting the new vintages maybe tasting things that we would bring down to this we're pouring a 2012 merlot um you know there's maybe one other 2012 red that's here and so people are looking for things like that, mm. things that are maybe a little bit unusual, they wouldn't necessarily find in their local t- uh, stores, retail stores. So they get an opportunity to hopefully taste something that's a bit more dynamic, let's say. And so as a consumer, if they, let's say tonight, they taste something that they really like, but they don't know how to find it, what would you recommend for them? You know, most of the wineries um, all ship 
around the state. So the easy thing to do is to go on websites or call the winery and just say, hey, I tasted this. You know, I'd be interested in finding it someplace. Usually we can point them in the direction of a retailer that would represent that product, but it's easy enough to also ship it, UPS. Usually we'll say to somebody, if you, if you go online, you can have it within a day or two wow. shipping uh, within the state. So, uh, so you mentioned um, a more serious consumer. Uh, so has Michigan wine, obviously it's improved over the years, but there, there was this kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, negative connotation, right? For, sure. for many years, sure. um, Michigan only does sweet Rieslings. Michigan only does, um, you know, uh, sweet juice, grape wine, sweet, right. Right. And so how has that changed and so even just talking about black star farms specifically um how has your wine evolved over the years well we started now 18 years ago and um i was fortuitous in that i'd moved back to michigan my my last time away being in italy i was there for about a year and a half working predominantly with red fruit uh in the northern uh portion of the country in the piedmont and coming back to the industry, seeing um, a, kind of an industry on the verge of starting to explode a little bit, um, more vineyards that were going in all the time, more people that had an interest in wine, making wine, um, but with a, with a more serious um, uh, concern for making products that would age well, that would be taken seriously by the the industry outside of just the state of Michigan. An awful you have to keep in mind that an awful lot of the early uh, industry was built around primarily a juice grape based industry. A lot of Concord wine. I mean, you guys may not be old enough to remember this, but Cold Duck in this state was huge. I mean, a huge product forty years ago. So what 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 um, is Cold Duck yeah. was a Concord-based sparkling wine. Sweet. But if you went to, I guarantee you, if you went to a uh, New Year's Eve celebration, there would probably be two cases of Cold Duck that would be there. Really? Uh, and people would plow through this stuff in the course of a night. <laughs> huge, huge product. Now it doesn't even exist. So there was an awful lot of that kind of thing that was, that was uh, well-known, made in the state, and it was very successful for them. So, of course, a lot of business grew up around that and it took time for the people that were so um, committed to a product like that or to a product line like that to say you know what we can also do other things and and this land this climate is suitable to also growing top shelf Riesling um, top shelf Pinot Gris in the southwest of the state some really top shelf red wines it just took time you know this this is uh, the wine industry itself is something that can't change course overnight we only get one shot a year to make our product unlike the brewers that can make you know a batch 20 30 40 times a year uh we get one chance and so depending on what it is you have to work with in the way of a raw material that might be in a vineyard that you either own or you're purchasing from uh or it's in a in a newly planted vineyard it's just going to take time to you know to come around and to give you the raw material necessary to maybe make something different. And so as people started to find small successes with maybe uh, experimental plantings, that started to encourage more and more people to start planting more of these varieties. I can give you an example. In northwest Michigan, when I first moved back, there was one guy up there that was growing Cabernet Franc, Pinot Noir, not so much Pinot Noir, but more Cabernet Franc and Merlot that I could work with. 
kind of a wacky grower, just an experimental guy. But seeing that fruit, we made a wine called Rafshaw Red from it at a winery that I was at prior to Black Star Farms, uh, Peninsula Cellars. And that wine, for a couple of years, became kind of a flagship northern Michigan red wine for the winery. And all of a sudden, it was one of those things is we had a couple of good back-to-back vintages, 94, 95, not so much 96, but more 97, where people said, hey, we should maybe be making more of these varieties. That encouraged more plantings, more red wine going in the ground, more red fruit going in the ground. And now you have so much more red wine up there being made. But it just, it's time. You Jason, know, the industry is still very young. Jason, tell us what we're drinking right now. We've got a uh, Arcturos 2016 Pinot Noir Rosé, uh, 12% alcohol by volume, Black Star Farms. I was curious, so when you were talking... Uh, the idea that so the, it's kind of the industry pushing the consumer into that direction. I was kind of trying to figure out like how the consumer came over time to be more um, sophisticated, knowledgeable, or asking for these products. Given the success of Cold Duck and what you're just describing, right? <laughs> like everybody's kind of on this product, and then over time, you say the industry is kind of like what do you what do you attribute that to? Like education, just just time. Like were you really pushing it out there? You know, I think it, it's people a com- are asking for it. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. Where you have you had the you know the craft beer movement certainly being a part of that, the craft spirit movement being a part of that, but also the the local growers that are growing in a sense craft vegetables, you know, small scale produce that's starting to you know or was then starting to talk about you know a greater depth of flavor, a greater depth of of nourishment uh, coming from these things. Just just a broader education in general. For people to have an appreciation for what it is they're consuming, yeah, you know, right. So, um, so the rosé, um, rosé is really rosé is right red now. hot, yeah, red hot. So, right now. is this, it's all the brosés that are drinking it? Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> is this something that you guys have done for a while now, or is this something you just started producing? We've been we've been making uh, this rosé for probably fifteen years. Um, and it's it's something that I've been committed to for a long time. But when we first started making it, I bet we made 150 cases of it and only sold it in the tasting room. This year, we're going to bottle about 1,500 cases of wow. it, uh, and we're getting it out to a broader market. But it's just it's it's the same kind of thing, you know. We've been drinking we as the as the as the consumer at the industry level has been drinking dry rosés for years. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, the, the the broader public is saying, "My gosh, this is great! I love it. It's refreshing. It's it's easy. It's quaffable." So, in in terms of uh, as we're winding up here, um, the Michigan Wine Collaborative. Let's t- tell us about that uh, quickly. Uh, yeah, quickly. <laughs> That's going to be a challenge. It's an industry organization that is forming around uh, every winery. Uh, anybody that's interested in the in the industry, you guys could could join the collaborative. What it is is a uh, an organization that's meant to support Michigan wine and the enhancement of Michigan wine in general. So it's going to be viticulturists. It's going to be equipment suppliers. It's going to be retailers. It's going to be consumers. Real, literally anybody that wants to to join because they have an interest in supporting the industry can do so. And, and where do they uh, find out information about the Michigan Wine MichiganWineCollaborative dot com. Awesome. We'll and where can we? Uh, where can people find you? People can find me at uh, Winemaker at Black Star Farms. They can find me at the winery. Although we have two in Northern Michigan, so I'm often at one or the other. Um, frequently in the tasting rooms. But uh, we'd love to see people. We're only four hours north. You know, we, we say to people, wine country is not Napa Valley anymore. You're literally four hours from down here. To four hours north country. of Detroit. 
four hours north of Detroit. Detroit. Yeah. Yeah, there you yes, go. indeed. All right. Lee, thanks for being with us. Happy to do it. Happy uh, to do it. We'll be right back with Deborah Bergdorf from Bergdorf's Winery. Welcome back to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast, our Michigan Wine Showcase episode. Uh, we are now with Deborah Bergdorf from Bergdorf's Winery in Hazlitt, Michigan. Hi, Deborah. Hello. How are you? Wonderful. How are you? Just fine. So, Deborah, tell us about your Michigan Wine Showcase experience so far. Oh, it's been great. <clears throat> so far, the event has been. Um, retailers and wholesalers that are interested in buying our wines and tasting and um we've met a wonderful group and hopefully our wines will be added to some of their venues is your wine a newer wine um the spartan white that i bought today um brought to this this event uh is one that we've made now for several years this is a newer vintage it's a 2015 um, we developed this from grapes right off the MSU campus, so we call it Spartan White. Go green. Yeah. We just recently changed the label, so it is green and white. <laughs> um, it's a fun wine, semi-dry white, uh, made from three grapes, um, Traminet, Vignoles, and Saval. Wow. Um, all those grapes are might be new to a lot of people in the Michigan area. They're, they're hybrids that grow well in the cold climate. Um, that's why we chose them. But it, it, it's a really nice, crisp, semi-dry wine that goes well with a lot of food, are a you, lot of different dishes. Are you related to MSU? Because like MSU has the distilling program where I know they sell like their um, their spirits. Is, is there any relation or are you just kind of friends? Uh, we're kind of friends. We um, know a lot of people in the area and we do a lot of things with the university and their students in the analogy program. Um, they had a class that was taught at our winery for a few years while they found some space elsewhere. Um, so we get a lot of students that want part-time jobs, which helps them and it helps us. Um, they have a small vineyard where they do research and development, and those three grapes happen to grow on campus, so we developed this blend. Um, we've gotten larger, though, so we do get more of the grapes from the southwest side of the state as well. Is winemaking a discipline? Is that something that that you can actually go study for? Not when I was there. Right. Potentially now. Um, they they actually had a program. Interesting. Um, I'm afraid that they um, lightened up on it um, due to some of the alcohol problems on campus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are some people that don't don't care to have their name associated with the alcohol, but um, they still do have the grape growing research going on. Um, so there are students that can go into the enology program, um, and they graduate with, with a degree. Yeah. And that's fascinating, too, because when my mom went to Michigan State, I'm a, I'm a legacy, I guess, um, there was a program as part of the hospitality where they would have the bartending class, and it was open to anyone at the time. Now you have to be in the hospitality program to do it because they had too many kids coming in and just getting schnockered. Mm, popularity. <laughs> Seems like it'd be one of those like easy credit yeah. classes. Yeah, where and you get to like, drink, too. Yeah, right. If you're 21. If you're 21, <laughs> correct. Mm -hmm. Well, there were times when my uncle went, it was 18. Yeah. So yeah, way back changed. when. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned uh, before that you're not you're not a producer of grapes. You you are a you're a winemaker. So you bring your you bring grapes in. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what does that mean in terms of uh, 
do you taste grapes before they're brought? Do you go on like grape tasting missions to, to figure out what vintages or do you have, are you just told that grapes are good and you make wine with them? How does no, that work? Um, we have a couple main farmers that grow for us and we basically dictate how we want the grapes to grow, whether we want to prune it back further to make a higher quality grape. Um, that's something. Could you talk about that? Because that's something that I don't think a lot of people know, is that you're kind of like stressing the grapes to make a, a better wine. Yeah, yeah. So all the energy, if you, if you prune back or cut off a lot of the, the um, clusters, what you're doing is you're forcing all the energy to go into the few that are left. So they're more likely to mature at the same time and to a higher level of, of quality. Um, due to that. So your per ton acre level is lower. So you're paying more per ton, mm-hmm. but you're getting a higher quality grape. And is that so. something that kind of distinguishes a more handcrafted wine versus a more mass market wine? One of the things Usually, maybe? Usually, yes. Okay. Yeah. For a mass production, a lot of times what they'll do is they take what they can get, they tweak it, and they push it out. Put it out. Yep. Um, our wines are very flavorful rich and full-bodied um they're not flat so you'll notice a big difference when you taste our wines versus some that might be on the shelf from a a very large producer Um, we produce about four thousand cases a year now between three and four thousand total total all your wines okay total all right so um we're very small but everything's hands-on um I've got a strong background in fermentation, microbiology, so um, my education was for fermentation in general, but I went back and, and did a lot of online courses when we decided to open this winery up 12 years ago. So, um, And over the course of the 12 years, how have things changed for you in terms of the evolution of your wines and oh, where, I, where the business yeah, is going? Yeah, you do nothing but improve, that's for sure, as you... You know, every year is an improvement for anybody that's in the wine business. Um, you learn new tricks of the trade, and um, you know what your customer base likes. So you kind of um, grow towards what is the demand, um, and um, yeah, you just you, you make better quality wine as you as you grow up. <laughs> so, so uh, since you're not growing, do, does weather affect you less than it does someone who? Is a grower, the, or, or is it affected, or is your production the, affected the same way? Um, what we do, and the advantage that we have, is if there's a year that we're not getting vinifera grapes, the Chardonnays, the Cabernets, you know, a cold winter where it did damage to those grapes, we focus on producing some of our fruit wines, some of our um, hybrids that do well in cold weather. And then when the year comes that we have a good vinifera growing crop then we we pick up there and we produce wines from there so we have a lot of um the ability to be flexible with whatever the farmer can do for us so if you don't get a grape one year do you have like an outcry from people saying like oh i really wanted that why aren't you making it um yeah we we produce enough and have a reserve enough to hopefully get us through a couple years if that happens um a lot of the reds do take aging Mm -hmm. And um, we could pull out a red a little bit sooner than we'd like to, but eventually it would reach that point of maturity that they would enjoy it. So we haven't, ourselves, we haven't had that. But 
again, if if that happens, then the demand is there, and when it does get produced and released, then it's it's a good problem. Yeah, it's a good problem. Um, so, as a uh, as a female winemaker, are you in the minority of winemakers uh, in Michigan nationwide? I, yeah, I think I'm in the minority. Um, definitely. Um, when I started, it seemed like there were about three. I think we're increasing. I think there might be like seven or eight winemakers in the state now that are women. So um, I think we're increasing. I think there's more of an interest. Uh, females are reaching out to all areas. So it's just like anywhere else. More doctors that are females and so on. So, <laughs> And you guys are in, uh, you're in Hazlitt, Michigan? Yes. So wh- where's Hazlitt? Hazlitt is right next to our capital city of Lansing. Um, so we're right by MSU. Um, that's why we have the Spartan White, Spartan Red. But I do need to let you know that we are going to come out with a Wolverine ah, <laughs> My son went to U of M. We get a lot of customers through the door that are U of Mers. So, I'm a Michigan um, man. So. <laughs> yeah, so look for that this summer. We should be coming out with a maize and blue kind of a... Wolverine white. And that'll be made with corn, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Actually, it's a Chardonnay Pinot blend. Mm-hmm. It's a very nice dry wine. Are you going to do like a competition where you keep track of sales all summer and Ooh. say like what, what the best sale, what the best seller was for the year, Ooh, for the summer? I don't, I, you know, good some idea. marketing $200. advice. Get a check <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to package them together and force people to buy the pair. Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That might, that might decrease sales. <laughs> I think it will be good for the... Uh, the families that are what do they call that when they're oh the split home or the split whatever homes. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> mixed house so, mixed houses uh so deborah where can people find you online uh we can be found at bergdorfwinery.com uh we're easy to get to we're right off of 96 about eight miles off north of 96 and three miles south of 69 so great yeah thank you for being with us and we will be right back with james lester from winecroft marlin we are back uh, with Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. We are now joined by James Lester from Wincroft, Marland. Uh, where are you located? Southwest Michigan, in, near the town of Buchanan, yep. which is near Niles, which is south of St. Joseph. Awesome. So, James, uh, how has the Michigan Wine Showcase been for you so far? Oh, uh, it's always fun. Um, we get the trade out in the morning. Uh, I mean, in the first session, they're um, always enthusiastic. Uh, we're trying to get more more placements on the restaurants, of course, and um, it's working really well. So we're we're very happy with it. So describe. Uh, so I was told you do a a French style of wine. Describe what that means and how it's different than other Michigan wines. Well, I think that uh, the first thing to consider is that our climate is very similar to France in Southwest Michigan. Um, that was the first thing that I noticed. Uh, like the 45th parallel, right? I, we're actually further south. We're oh, further 40, south. We're at the 42nd parallel oh, okay. in southwest Michigan. But because we're surrounded by a large landmass, our spring comes later than it does in France, but we have a longer fall. Okay. So from the time the buds come out on the vines to the time we harvest is almost exactly the same number of days as the growing season in Burgundy and Bordeaux uh, in southwest Michigan. So I planted the grape varieties that grow in Burgundy and Bordeaux. Uh, it, it made sense to me because our natural rhythms um, of the seasons pretty much match up with those areas of France. Um, and so I planted uh, 
some experimental vines in 1983 and made my first red Pinot Noir. I, I was the first person to make a red Pinot Noir in Michigan. And then a couple of years later, I made the first red Bordeaux blend, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot. Uh, and I was so surprised at how the wines resembled French wines. They didn't say, taste anything like California wines. They tasted like French wines. And a lot of my friends who had good wine cellars full of good French wines were shocked when they tasted my early wines. And that gave me a lot of confidence. Were you producing for mass consumption back in... Uh, my first wines were made in my basement. I was a, just a hobbyist. Oh, okay. And uh, based on the quality of what I was able to produce in my basement, I decided to jump right in with all fours and start a winery. And was that legal at that time? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, because that's about when beer kind of started too, right? Kind of home brewing? Um, yes. Okay. Uh, that's correct. Um, but I was just interested in wine because uh, my wife is an amazing cook, and I kept seeing these bottles of wines uh, in the in the recipe books on the table, and I thought, man, I'm missing something. I need to learn about wine if I'm going to be, you know, cultured. And when I have my friends over for a, a dinner party, I want to at least be able to pick out the right wine to go with the food. And it was really that just simple uh, quest that got me so interested. And uh, the more I tasted, the more I thought, you know, I know how to grow plants. I grew up in a plant family. Uh, I grew up with garden tools in my hands. So I thought, I'm going to learn how to grow these vines. And about that time, I read about Dr. Constantine Frank in New York and how he'd gone to France and brought back cuttings and how he'd been successful in growing them in the Finger Lakes in New York. And I looked at the map and I thought, well, you know, that's further north than we are. Mm -hmm. And I looked at some weather data and I thought, wow, this is why isn't somebody already doing this? And uh, at that time, I think most of the vineyards in southwest Michigan were Concords and juice grapes. And I, uh, after looking at the maps and the weather data, I thought, well, I'm going to plant Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Riesling, Gewürztraminer. So I put in a little experimental plot, and as they say, the rest is history. I've been doing this now for quite a few years. I had so, brown hair when I started. <laughs> Has the weather data changed in the last, uh, since then? Because I mean, anecdotally, just from growing up in Michigan, mm-hmm. it seems that the weather has evolved a little bit, and I'm wondering how that interacts with the... Um, yes. Uh, I personally haven't noticed in the 30-some years I've been growing a big change. I notice a lot of change from year to year. We have fluctuations in temperatures from year to year, just like they do in France. Uh, you can get a cool year. You can get a rainy harvest. You can get you know all the things that, that besought or that, that upset um, French winemakers. We get similar things from the big lakes. But uh, I think we're slightly warmer over the growing season. Uh, my vineyard gets 3,000 heat units. Uh, Bordeaux gets 2,700. Burgundy gets 2,500. So I'm warmer than Bordeaux and Burgundy. So I have enough heat units to ripen those grapes. And just armed with that simple information, I went ahead and planted. And um, so uh, when I first got going, most of the wines in Michigan were white wines and were sweet wines. But I was wanting to set out to make good red wine. That was my goal. And so that's why And I focused on Pinot Noir because I thought Pinot Noir is an early ripening variety. That one I know will ripen here in Michigan. And I made my first Pinot Noir in 83, and I served it to Michael Foley, a famous restaurateur from Chicago, who was also a big Burgundy lover, and he nearly fell out of his chair. He says, I can't believe this is from Michigan. And I said, I can't either. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the second wine I made, and I knew it wasn't because I was some sort of genius. I knew it had to be because of the quality of the grapes that we can grow here. And it turns out that Southwest Michigan has been traditionally a fruit basket state. Uh, Anywhere where apples and peaches and cherries grow well, grapevines will grow well. Um, unfortunately, we'd never 
done, done that much with wine grapes, just Concords. And so uh, I guess maybe I was one of the uh, early crazy people that said, let's, let's do this wine thing. <laughs> <laughs> so was there a point when you kind of like had a, like a make or break, like a panic time? So you said you planted an experimental crop. Did you ever say like, okay, we're going to go like full tilt. We're going to buy all this land. Like what? Tell me about that. Like was there a time for that? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I, I bumped into another young man who thought similarly to me, and he owned a piece of property, and he had already planted some vines, and so we joined forces and then we took on a third partner, and we launched a little winery called Madrin Lake Hills back in 1987. I'm sorry, 86. And we made a dry Gewurztraminer. We made a Spätlese-style Riesling, and we made a barrel-fermented Chardonnay. All three of them won uh, international medals. Wow. And um, we w- walked into the restaurants in Chicago and poured these wines, and the sommeliers in Chicago were absolutely dumbfounded when they tasted the wines. So we knew we were onto something. But uh, the excitement, of course, of making high-quality wines uh, is um, short-lived because the realities of the wine business are pretty intense. Uh, it's, it's a very large capital outlay, and then you have to wait. It's very risky. You can only make your product one time a year. That means a winemaker, if he starts making wine when he's you know, 25, can only make maybe wine maybe 40 times in his life. I mean, that's, you think about that. You get to make it one time a year, and if you mess it up, you've got to wait a whole other year to get another chance. <laughs> so, yes, there's a lot of risks and pitfalls in the business. And then, of course, there's the problem of trying to market a high-quality product at a fairly good price from an unknown wine region mm-hmm. where people are skeptical. Uh, that skepticism, I'm happy to say, is dying away these days. Uh, I always ask people, you know, if you went to a, the best restaurant in San Francisco in 1965 and tried to order a bottle of California Cabernet you would not be able to. There wasn't any on the wine list. And we're kind of in the same problem right now in Michigan. We're just now, after all these years, starting. the word is starting to get out on the street, hey, Michigan's making some pretty good wine. And so we are starting to get into the restaurants a little more. Um, when I first started, I was the only Michigan wine on most of the wine lists I wow. got on. Um, and now uh, you can usually find two or three Michigan wines on a wine list. But we've got a long ways to go to convince our own, you know, fellow Michiganders, hey, there's something really exciting happening right under your noses. Wake up. Isn't there a push to do like a, like a DOC designation for Michigan? Well, we have uh, Michigan AVAs, okay. uh, American Viticultural Areas. And the AVA system is a federal system. I mean, it's a, it's a, a nationwide system. And an interesting fact, uh, my colleague Doug Welch, who owns Fen Valley Winery, not too far from Saugatuck, Applied for the for the the third official American AVA is Fenville, and it's right here in Michigan. The wow. very, the third one is a Michigan AVA. I think that's a really interesting fact that we that somebody in our state was was that visionary to <laughs> apply for an AVA, and he got the third one, probably right behind Napa and Sonoma. <laughs> wow. So you you produce um, you have a smaller production yes. load than most. Other right. wineries, right? So, wh- right. Wh- what? How many bottles do you produce in a, in a year? Um, we're up to about a thousand cases now. That okay. would be twelve thousand bottles. Okay. Um, my my estate production is about three to four hundred cases. And when I say estate, I'm talking about my two vineyards that I farm myself. And those wines go under the Wincroft label. Those are all single vineyard wines. Uh, in the in the French tradition, uh, the finest wines always come from single vineyards from the winemaker who also farms the grapes. 
that's where all the best wines in the world come from. And that's when you say a state, that's what that means, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, that's the most, uh, that's the most definitive, uh, way of saying a state. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, the U S law allows me to have a, 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 another person's vineyard under contract, what's called a grower contract and call it a state. Um, and I do do a few wines like that, but in general, my Wincroft line is hundred percent single vineyard estate grown. Uh, and I grow the grapes myself. So I control my product from the dirt to your dinner table. Um, we do a lot of our own self-distribution in the Wincroft. We distribute that ourselves to our private customer mailing list and directly to restaurants. Um, and what is the bottle that we're drinking right now? Uh, this is my show. This is the Bordeaux blend. Um, the very first version of this was the Michigan's first red Bordeaux, Bordeaux blend in 1999. Uh, it sells for $45 a bottle. And... Uh, I got this wine on some of the top wine lists in Detroit and Chicago, and they were selling it for 120 Wow. And that shocked people. Well, that sounds about right. A Michigan about wine three for times. $120, yeah. and then they tasted it, and they go, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I've been, I've been trying to make believers out of people for a long time. But, uh, yes, it's, um, uh, you can put this into a tasting with French Bordeaux's and put them all in bags, brown bags, and you'd be hard-pressed to pick it out as the standout wine. Is, oh, that's definitely the one from Michigan. Uh, it hides very well in its company. So I'm, not, I'm very proud that we can make these kinds of wines in Michigan, and I'm hoping that the rest of our population catches on, that they don't have to go to the Napa Valley or to France to find a really fine wine. Fine wine's being made in their own backyard. And where can people, uh, where in their backyard can people find you? Uh, the Wincroft wines you have to call or uh, call the winery or get on. I have an online wine shop, and after our customers have bought all that, all that they they want, whatever's left over we put in the online wine shop. So people can go right onto my website www.wincroftwine.com, and they can place orders right there. They that's can run d- credit cards, whatever. That's W Y N W Y N C R O F T W I N E singular yeah. dot com. Yes. All right. Um, and that's how we do our business. Awesome. James, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And we'll be right back with Chantelle Lafab from Waterfire. We're back to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. And we are joined by Chantelle Lafab from Waterfire. Uh, where's Waterfire located, Chantelle? We are on the east. We are on the east side of um, East Grand Traverse Bay, so just north of Elk Rapids. Uh, about 35 minutes north of Traverse City. And you, you, I think, would be considered one of the new kids on the block, right? How yes. long have you guys been producing? We have been producing, uh, growing since 2009. Our first production was 2012. And we are actually opening our tasting room for the first time on Friday. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. come one, come all. <laughs> so I have to, like, I don't know, be, be a bit of a fanboy here and, and tell you that I was incredibly impressed and have been ever since i think i the, the sauvignon blanc that you guys produced i think it was your first run um was absolutely incredible and um i think from my point of view at the time that michigan wasn't doing many sauvignon blancs and uh what what made you guys uh go down was it a matter of not not seeing a lot of michigan sauvignon blancs or was there something more to it than that well when we were deciding what to plant, um, we knew that we wanted to, of course, focus on white wines uh, because Michigan does such a great job at white wines. And are you saying because um, of the kind of longitude, latitude? Kind um, of? More because of like the quirk, the short and oftentimes quirky growing season that we have. We just okay. don't get the heat 
to ripen red fruit consistently. Okay. So we were we were looking for some, a little consistency from year to year, especially to get started. But we were interested in growing varieties that other people weren't. So we definitely paid attention to what everybody else was doing. And then I combined that with the wines that I really like and just tried to find, um, you know, a match that would, a white that I like that would grow well here that nobody else is really doing much with. So that's how we, we chose the Sauvignon Blanc and the Grunewaldliner. Um, and of course we, we grow Riesling too, because Michigan makes some spectacular Rieslings. And is that what we're drinking right now? The bottle looks Riesling-esque. I actually brought our 2016 Gruner Veltliner. Oh, is it the same bottle? It is. Okay. Whew. Yeah. Okay. Just making sure I'm not completely out of it. Yeah. No, <laughs> it is. So I feel like there's a, there's a risk if you jump in as a new winery and, and produce these wines that no one else is producing. Mm. Um, what kind of gave you the the, uh, the the fortitude to kind of like push forward with these grapes that no one else is growing? Well, there are small amounts of both of these varieties, the Sauvignon Blanc and Gruner, being grown. Um, Brian Albrecht at Left Foot Charlie, ha- when Gills Pier was still around, um, it's I don't think they're open anymore, but we... Um, I was working for them at the time, and they would have a small harvest of Sauvignon Blanc. Now, they used it as a blending grape, but I was amazed at the potential it had in the vineyard. You know, it was growing really well. Um, And Sean O'Keefe at Chateau Grand Traverse at the time, he was also growing a small amount of Sauvignon Blanc. So I at least knew it could survive um, and that it definitely could ripen. And after that, it's up to us. To grow it the right way and make a good wine. Mm-hmm. So did you have to get investors or did you have like, so I'm sitting here listening as like a banker, like, yes. so you think it's going to grow? Like, how yes. did that work? Um, well, I'd be hard pressed to find many banks that are going to invest in the grape grower. <laughs> <laughs> so we have, um, our financing is through Greenstone okay. and the, um, the farm service agency. Okay. So we have some federal, federally backed loans get it and so they're a little more kind of hip to the you know some of the chances you might be willing to take or extremely okay yeah extremely and um they're they're great to work with because they are part of the um, department of agriculture Mm -hmm. Um, so they are working with a lot of farmers in the area sure so so kind of explain the uh the stance you take as a winemaker um that that may be different than someone. So I, I you've used the term um, you uh, your vin you you're a vineyard. How, what did you, how did you say it? What was the tr- well? We make our wine in the vineyard. In, I mean, in the vineyard, the, like meaning that our fruit everything goes into growing and the quality of the fruit. And how is that different than than other wineries? Well, part of it is that we farm ourselves. So we are fully in control of our practices. We don't rely on a farm management company. So we make all of the decisions when it comes to spraying, fertilizing, and the timing. We are not at we're not at somebody we're not on somebody else's schedule, and that can be really important. So, so what does that mean in terms of the quality of the grape? In terms of wh- wh- how. 
and the quality of the wine ultimately? Well, we are, because of where we live, surrounded by these beautiful lakes, and in part because of my history, my professional background as an environmental scientist, it was very important to me that we farm in a way that wasn't going to impact the watershed Hmm. of these lakes. So we are, we farm what's called biologically. There's no, it's not biodynamic, um, and there's no certification for that practice in particular, but what it means is that we're very focused on the quality of the health of the soil, and that everything, everything about growing a grape, about growing anything, is centered around the soil and the quality of the soil and the act, the complexity of the soil. So, so these the certificate, this biodynamic, and I, I think probably organic falls into these kind of, are, are these labels that ultimately cost money? Yes. So, so sure. when, when you're growing and you have a tasting room now, mm-hmm. you said it was opening Friday, um, you're able to tell people at, at your level that yes. when, once they walk through the door that these, this is how we grow. Right. But we didn't pay necessarily to have the certification. Is, is it okay to say that um, or no? Well, we are actually in the process of uh, obtaining a certain certification. Okay. Okay. And when you talk um, about the money, are we talking about like thousands, tens of thousands, thousands hundreds of thousands of thousands. dollars? Okay. And then um, a tremendous amount of annual paperwork and upkeep. Mm, okay. Uh, the reason we are focused on um, getting a sustainable certification or being certified sustainable um, is because it covers the environmental you know, critical environmental aspects of, of farming, but it also gets into social equity, paying fair wages, um, being a part of participating in the community, participating mm-hmm. in educating yourself and furthering your knowledge. All of these things are have to be documented as part of this program. So we see it as a, a really more holistic than an organic certification, which is just focused on the farming. Mm-hmm. Is that a federal certification? I'm sorry, I'm not. It is. Okay. So the certified sustainable is a third party, um, third party certification. So we don't have to deal with the federal government. Would you be the first in yeah, Michigan to have that certification? That. We will actually be the first outside of the state of California if we get the certification. Hold on, I think I have an applause button. Let me see. So you'd be the, you'd be the second, second in the country. Um, and this is a program that they're interested in expanding outside of the state of California. Uh, okay. So we are going to, we're sort of their pet pilot project. Um, so wow. uh, we're helping them, you know, kind of change the questions up a little bit so that they're more applicable to regions that are outside of California. I think we're getting that theme that like, it's kind of like California, then Michigan. Like, I don't know if people understand like how much of a, program that we have for wine in the state. I mean, because now we've heard that a couple times. Like, it was like California kind of did it first, and then we were right behind them. Right. Yeah, and there's a sense that, um, I I mean, we're growing up, right? Michigan is growing up. So there's, and I think these kind of winemakers like yourself that that are, like, pushing what Michigan wine is, right? So uh, maybe you're not the first to do particular wines, but you're, you're the first on like a, like we're going to bank on Sauvignon Blanc. We're going to bank on Gruner. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to push this as far as it can go. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to really push the fact that 
wines can be grown in organically or as close to organic as you could get because there's a lot of people that think it just can't be done in Michigan. And that's one of the things that we are determined to do at this point because it's great for where we live. I mean, we should all be more mindful about what we're putting in the ground around all these beautiful fresh lake, fresh water. So where can people, where is this uh, tasting room that's opening on Friday? Our tasting room is um, just about six miles north of Elk Rapids. We are on uh, the tor- We are near Torch Lake. Okay. Um, so we have that on our bottle, and uh, we are, I would say, about twenty-five minutes south of Charlevoix. So we are on that Harbor Springs to Traverse City um, travel sure. route. Great. That's some good money around there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Chantel, thanks for being with us, and we will be right back with Claudia Tiagi, Master Sommelier. Welcome back to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. And we are incredibly honored to be joined by Master Sommelier, Claudia Tiagi. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Joe. How are you? Awesome. How are you? <laughs> oh, I am at my peak today because we're here at the Michigan Wine Showcase. And this is an event that's very dear to my heart. So this is an event that you... Uh, you're one of the head planners of this event, correct, with Madeleine Trefon? Yes, indeed. Actually, the um, Michigan Grape and Wine Industry Council approached me in 2009 because Madeline and I had been uh, visiting um, a meeting of the winemakers up north in Old Mission and Leelanau Peninsula, and we told them that people in Detroit needed to see them needed to see their smiles, needed to learn who they were, um, needed to press the flush and let share the good news about how wonderful Michigan wines were. And fortunately, in 2009, we applied for a stimulus grant, and it was given to us. And so 2010 was the first year of the Michigan Wine Showcase. So in its current carnage, like at the Rattlesnake, like in its current no, car- it no. was it wasn't at the Rattlesnake. We've had a couple of venues. The first one was at the um, the Matt Prentice Restaurant Shiraz, which was how we got Madeline on board because she was uh, the corporate sommelier there, and we held um, we held the first one at. Shiraz Gardens, and we did that for two years, and then went to Northern Lake Seafood, and after that, discovered the wonderful Rattlesnake Club, and we've been here ever since. So I feel like the the uh, the kind of um, vision um, of bringing the winemakers down here and having them press press the flesh, so to speak, as you said, um, is very service-focused, right? So you're a master sommelier, and how there's more to being a master sommelier than simply recommending a wine. Uh, well, passing the tests at four different <laughs> levels, yeah, that, 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 would, uh, that would, it took 10 years of my life. <laughs> so it, uh, uh, some people pass quicker, some people keep trying and they hone their skills and they bring them to another level. I was just very blessed, very fortunate to have passed in London in 1997. And how, and how does your 
how does being a master sommelier kind of translate to an event like the Michigan Wine Showcase? Well, I've always been really excited by discovering wines, and I know I've learned deep in my blood the classics, um, the, the the wonderful European wines, especially the French. Those are the ones I know. But I feel that uh, being from Michigan, I'm a Michigander. Detroit, born, raised, and educated, and actually now I'm um, my primary client is a wine shop called House of Pure Van, which is in um, downtown Detroit on Woodward Avenue, and um, I really feel like I've always felt as a sommelier, my mission is to discover the new classics. Now that I, because I've learned and enjoyed what makes a wine a classic. I can look for it anywhere. And a lot of my contemporaries spent a lot of time in California working there. And I uh, respect and honor the wines of California, also Oregon and Washington State. But I've always been intrigued by the possibilities in Michigan because we have something here that's really different. We have cool climate wines. California... Wines are ripe and forward and fruity. Um, most New World wines are. Michigan wines are very much like the European classics in a way because they're cool climate wines. They're refined. They're elegant. They're not in your face. They take some uh, contemplative work from you. You have to... You have to spend some time with them and enjoy them. And I'm generalizing, because, of course, there are really lovely, delightful Michigan fruit bombs, too. <laughs> but uh, but I've, I'm always looking for subtleties and interest in any style of wine, and I feel that Michigan grapes and Michigan wines really fulfill that, that need for, uh, for complexity, subtlety, um, beauty. Classical beauty. So with that, do you think that Michigan wines are more advanced wines? Like maybe, you know... I wouldn't say advanced. It's a different style. Like, we break down... So the advanced down, drinker, maybe? Not necessarily, no. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, I recommend Michigan wines to all sorts of drinkers. But what I do when I see that I might have a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of a roadblock with someone which is what I'd call a, a, a prejudice against mm. something. People make up their wines before they actually experience. And I try to get people to experience without even knowing where the wine is. I've done a lot of blind tastings with, with people and don't tell them that they're enjoying a Michigan wine, ask them what they think. And I've gotten some incredible answers. It's really fun to see how... People will think a beautiful, sparkling wine made from 100% Chardonnay from up north in Leelanau is um, a French champagne. And uh, we do have wines of that character and quality here in Michigan. It's just, I've heard people say that, um, you know, a prophet is not recognized in their own country. And I think there are a lot of Michiganders who have had an idea about Michigan wines because they tasted one maybe that had been sitting in grandma's fridge too long was like, 
you know, oxidized to the max, overly sweet, not pleasurable, certainly no one's definition of good wine. And I'm not saying that every drop of wine in Michigan is good, but you don't have to look very hard to find some really delightful options. And now in Michigan, they're making ciders and perries, too. And I'm very excited about that. Well, and I suppose I need to tip my hat to the brewers and distillers in the state, too, because they're doing a wonderful job, and I'm very excited about that. But Michigan wines are exploding And I think you're going to see new appellations in Michigan. Like right now we have uh, Fenville, we have Lake Michigan Shore, Old Mission Peninsula, Leelanau Peninsula. But we've got wineries opening up in Tecumseh and in Port Huron. And people are experimenting with different grape varieties. I think today at the show you'll see there's a lot more Sauvignon Blanc here than you've ever seen grown in Michigan. And the Lake Michigan Shore people are really doing some exceptional things with the grape varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, um, when we thought perhaps the potential for making red wines in Michigan was limited, and now we're finding maybe not so much. You know, certain things that they can do, certain vineyard techniques. We have the protection of Lake Michigan on all that all that region that that gives the vines a little bit of help. Of course, the polar vortex did not help us, <laughs> and we've we. We Michigan still has difficult vintages as well as abundant ones. So if I'm a restaurant owner, do, do I put a section on my wine list of Michigan wines? Oh, you can do that if you want, and it's nice to highlight them. But I, I've written many different wine lists and uh, for many restaurants around in the Detroit area. And lots of times... I don't make it a special Michigan thing. I will just put, say, a Michigan Chardonnay that I know is really exceptional in with the other Chardonnays. And I state where it's from, of course. Um, but if you want a good bottle of Chardonnay and it happens to be from Michigan, great. It, uh, you can feature it, and it's a nice way to do it. But I also like to just include Michigan wines in a a wider category and then let people see that yeah it's comparable to a to a lovely maconnet from uh from burgundy in france so you just let the michigan wines walk with the uh walk with the giants there on the list yeah let the michigan wines speak for themselves and i know people have had bad experiences but people have bad experiences with wine a lot of people don't understand that wine is perishable and mm. it needs to be stored and treated like a f- perishable food. Mm-hmm. You have to know how to store the wine, especially if it's an, a, a bottle with a cork. You want to lay it on its side. You don't want vibration. You want a stable temperature, preferably like maybe say around 60 degrees Um But stable is important, keeping it the same year-round to store your wine. No vibration or noise. And um, certainly, um, after you open the bottle, uh, knowing how to treat it in each individual wine, how to treat it, um, helps you have a longer-lived wine. So. 
So, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> no, so, uh, I mean, I really like to get people to thinking of wine as food and thinking, you know, you can't leave this wine in the window and the sunshine standing up. Um, it's going to be ruined. Mm-hmm. And you have to take care of it, store it properly, and it's really not all that difficult to store it properly. Cla- Claudia, thanks for being with us. Where, where can people find you? House of Pure Van on Woodward Avenue in downtown Detroit, and I'm so excited to be there. We have a great global selection, but we put our first bins um, in the store when you walk in are from Michigan. And they have a champagne room. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I love champagne. Claudia, thank you. We will be right back with Charlie Edson from Bell Lago. And I'd like to give a special shout out to our sponsor for the evening, Art Wine Preservation. Enjoy wine by the glass without the waste. Wine protected with eco-friendly Art Wine Preservation keeps wine fresh for weeks instead of days with only a two-second pull. Keep open bottles of wine from spoiling so you don't have to dump wine down the drain or suffer through oxidized wine. Art Wine Preservation was designed by an engineer in the argon industry to decrease wine waste through sustainable technology. It uses natural argon gas, which is denser than air, to displace oxygen in your bottle of wine. Remember, AR, capital T, Wine Preservation. And welcome back to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. We are now joined with, by, with Charlie Edson uh, from Bel Lago Winery. And where is Balago located? Uh, we're up on Leelanau Peninsula, just north of the little village of Cedar. And how, and how long have you been making wine, Charlie? Three decades. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to imagine. So you said you started growing grapes when? Um, we planted our first vineyard in 1987. Planted a vineyard of uh, about 20 different varieties, just trying to figure out what would grow well in Leelanau Peninsula. And what what did you find? Like what, what, so, twenty different varieties. Um, as a novice wine consumer, um, what have you found? Uh, those twenty varieties were, were they twenty recognizable grapes that you planted? Yeah, they were, they were all well known varieties. Okay, uh, we're a short season climate, so one of my favorites is Nebbiolo, uh, the variety that Barolo is made out of. Uh-huh. I thought, oh, if we can grow this, I knew full well we probably couldn't. That was the first one to go. But some of the stars were um, now well-known in the industry. Riesling, Pinot Grigio, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir did well. And a new, uh, back then, a new variety uh, on Leelanau Peninsula was Auxerrois, which is a variety that we grew um, starting 30 years ago. The, that's, the, that's, AU, that's the AUX. Uh, yeah, A-U-X-E-R-R-O-I-S, and it's an Alsatian variety by origin. And there, there are very few winemakers producing that right there there are it's it's sort of a specialty for us uh chateau fontaine down the road grows it um hawthorne over on uh, old mission now grows it but we we were the pioneers if you will and and how how do you when you pick 20 grapes you you pick grapes that grow in a similar climate correct and then so from there you go on to what what's the next step after because you're kind of certain that they'll grow What's the next step after that? Yeah, with the exception of an outlier like Nebbiolo, right. um, which was just a personal indulgence. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, the next step is to, once you, fit, once you decide which varieties do well, grow well, then the next step is to expand into a commercial-sized vineyard, which is what we did. And 
We, we have more Pinot Grigio in the ground than any other variety, for example, because it does really well and it makes a nice wine that's well-known and, and uh, uh, customers like. Jason, question for you. So we've now had um, five producers come through, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of goes into your restaurants, your, you know, your group's decision when you pick like wines out, when you pick Michigan wines? Well, he's asking me, but I'm the wrong guy. To <laughs> no, I know. I'm just kind of curious. I'm like, so, the, I'm like the bourbon well, could, spirits thing. Like all of this, it's been a really fantastic uh, uh, afternoon listening and learning a lot because, um, you know, that's something that I don't really, I, I don't have a part of. And it, I think that's, that's not crazy. So when you look at kind of the way the local has advanced, I feel like wine is like kind of the next thing right now. And, you know, there's, there's totally a lot of beer. There's totally a lot of bourbon, but. I still think wine is by far the most intimidating. Yeah, Wright & Company has, you know, Cat Hawkins. She's studying yeah. to continue on uh, her sommelier path. John Trasky, sommelier, is director of operations. But if you think about it, I mean, we don't even we don't serve wine at the Sugar House, which is where I got started off at. And I pre- uh, tr- um, uh, typically work just in the, with the spirits, mm-hmm. not even the beer. So we're a spirit-forward organization. But although Wright & Company does have a really solid wine program, I would say – um, but I'm really interested to learn uh, through this experience moving forward a lot more about the wine. And I can see some sort of parallels with the spirits, mm-hmm. um, which I'm picking up on pretty quickly. So, A lot of terroir and yeah. Yeah. seasonality terroir. And, and so like, with, with uh, Belago, like, what, what is your kind of focus? Um, we talked to James Lester earlier, and he's more of like a French wine, kind of, has a French focus. Um Chantal Lefebvre from uh, Waterfire is a very vineyard focus. I don't know what that means, but um, necessarily, like she she explained it earlier. Um, But what do you think your focus is at Bel Lago in terms of, um, I don't know, flavors or um, production? Like, are you a large producer? It's an. I'm sitting here smiling because it's a really interesting question. Um, We actually grow about 100 different varieties. So in our first test vineyard, we planted 20 varieties. Or thereabouts. And, and what's your acreage? Uh, 32. And so mm-hmm. a lot of those varieties, you know, we're only growing a dozen plants. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to try to figure out still what will do well in our climate. So we make a lot of blends. And so our focus is, is um, I might say, specialty varieties. So, you know, we're really proud of our Chardonnay. We're really proud of our Pinot Noir. Um, I can't say that we're... That we're uh, like Mr. Lester, leaning towards uh, France per se, but we are we do lean more towards a European model rather than a California model, and the reason for that is our grapes across all varieties provide us the ripeness level to make wines more in that style than in the style of California, where it's warmer and the grapes get riper, and the flavor profiles and the texture of the wines that come from those varieties grown in that terroir are just different from what we do, and so. We lean more towards Europe, but I like to say that our focus is Leelanau Peninsula and working with the fruit that we make. We, we try to make what the fruit tells us to make, if you will. So we're, we're, just, we're just releasing a 2016 Riesling. It's a dry Riesling. We don't make dry Riesling that often, but these grapes, right during the early fermentation, they just, they just said to us, um, Blake is the other main winemaker at Bel Lago with me, the grapes just said to us, make me a dry Riesling. So we did. That's amazing. So that's almost like a chef's way to kind of approach like 
going to the farmer's market and being like, oh, I have this amazing green pepper and I really want to f- showcase this. What do I do? Like the, the food talking to him. And I love that approach to the wine, not trying to force it, but really taking, you know. And, and to build on that, something that is coming up in, to, to me right now is the, the idea of like these kind of um, kind of fat. I don't want to say fad, but like like exciting ingredients like ramps or fiddleheads or these types of so how much does <clears throat> like you know a chef goes to the market now and they, there's ramps um how much does the market kind of dictate what you're producing as a winemaker well you have to pay attention to the market so when we when we blend wines for example when we do the final the final blend of lots to create a wine and the final finishing of the wine we, we try to make, the, first of all, the best wine that we can make from a particular variety in a particular year. But there's always a, there's always a question about the flavor profile, uh, the final balance of the wine. And we pay attention to what our customers tell us with respect uh, to the final finish and the balance of the wine. So if we're, if we're thinking about a semi-dry Riesling, for example, there's always a point where um, Blake and I decide on what is essentially a narrow range that's will all be acceptable wines. And if we think that our customers will prefer one end of that range over another, we'll choose the range that our customers like. After all, the customers keep us in business. So it, there, there, is a, there is a part of you that can produce wines for, like, winemakers? Is, 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 that, is, that even a, is there even a it's, market for that? It's not, it's not winemakers. It's, it's us. So here's, here's the way I like to think about this. Um, you've heard about the, the, um, the saying wine is a combination of art and science. Winemaking is a combination of art and science. So you have to understand the science. But once you move beyond the science, then it's the, then it's the artistry of the winemaking. And so the, if you think about all winemakers have, a, have, a, all winemakers have a, a palette of paints to work with, and the difference between my, winemakers beyond the terroir of the, of, the, of the source and the fruit is how do you put those those colors on the canvas and similar i like the the metaphor or the comparison to uh, chefs um we think in the same sorts of terms and so when i when i talk about this this balance blake and i may have a, a different sweet sweet spot if you will in the finish of a particular wine than what we think our customers might have and that's just because of what we what we like i mean like customers we like certain things but when we finish the wine our goal is to please our customers, not us. I mean, we, don't get me wrong. We make wines for ourselves. <laughs> we make some wines strictly the way we like them. Yeah. And then we hope our customers buy them. But the bulk of our wines have to be aimed at pleasing our customers. What is that customer? So um, with Chantel, I was kind of curious, uh, the different sizes and distribution sizes, successes reaching more of the Michigan market. What is the market for the wines what would be success you like um the one john was talking about getting wines on lists in chicago new york chantelle had a much smaller footprint what does that look like when you talk about the market even most of this comes from customers in our tasting room we work with distributors mostly in michigan and some in illinois and so we factor that in as well and i i don't i don't want to give the the wrong impression the differences in finish are very small and so we're talking about very small adjustments and so Blake and I still like the wine. 
Yeah. I mean. Oh no, I was just. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't. I wasn't hammering on that. I mean, wait, I don't. I don't want to give the wrong impression here. No, I was. I wasn't hammering on that. It was kind of because, yeah. like, we've been talking about this idea of like California has always has been traditionally number one, and now Michigan's like, you know, coming out of the scene, and uh, you know, it's being uh, uh, the awareness is up there. So I'm just wondering, as I'm trying to learn about this like what what that really what that means for like in terms of like the market size and how how michigan continues to expand is it really working continuing to work on getting michigan in their own backyard to become aware of it is it reaching people elsewhere in the country that's what i was kind of getting at yeah you know, what, in terms of like what what is the market when we talk about the market what's the old saying you're never a profit in your own land yeah um so I think the thing, the thing that we really need to do as an industry and as winemakers is to capitalize on, on what we're given here, what we, can, what we can grow. And what we can grow here is fruit with really bright fruit aromatics. And so if you compare wines from northern Michigan, for example, to wines from California, the big, biggest difference for me is the aromatics, particularly in the whites, but in the reds as well. And so the California wines will, will give us a little bit more depth. Washington wines, same thing, a little bit more depth but um, more subdued aromatics. It's a generalization, of course. And so our goal, I think, is to, is to capture what we have here and then to show that to the world. So, so as interest in smaller regions like Michigan in, increases, it's important for us to focus on our terroir, if you will, and, and not try to make wines that mirror wines from other regions. That's, that's my opinion. So we get sometimes people that come into the tasting room and they say, well, I really like Aussie reds. Well, we can't make Aussie reds, and nor, do, <laughs> nor do we want to. Yeah. You know? And so our fruit just won't give that to us. So what we try to do at Belago is to focus on what our fruit gives us. And therein, the, you know, the earlier reference to dry Riesling talking to us. Right. Charlie, thanks for being with us. Uh, where can people find you online and, uh, once again, uh, location-wise? Um, well, we're um, north of Cedar on Leelanau Peninsula, right in the middle of the peninsula. We overlook, uh, um, as we like to say, beautiful South Lake Leelanau. Uh, we're actually in a really blessed, we're in a really beautiful place. Um, we're on the web at uh, bellagowinery.com. Great. Uh, thanks for everyone to, for being with us tonight. Uh, we've had a great time at the Michigan Wine Showcase at the Rattlesnake Club. Until next time, dine well, friends.